concepts like development and cooperation mean anything to you, you know those big words a little cloudy that hover somewhere between politics and humanitarianism. Well, at Supernova, we are an NGO, and development is the core of our work, it's our passion. So we'd love to take you on board and offer you an original approach that's true to who we are by inviting to our mic the privileged players and witnesses of a dynamic, ambitious and accessible world of development. Welcome to Voices of Development, a podcast created and produced by Supernova. Today, I met Yannick Dupont. Yannick is the founder of Spark, one of the European leading non-governmental organizations bringing entrepreneurship to fragile states. Spark and Supernova partner on the Libya Startup Project, funded by the European Union to support the entrepreneurship ecosystem in Libya, building incubators, developing local services to support future entrepreneurs and guide them towards success. Spark started as a student initiative back in the 90s. While others were enjoying students' life in the Netherlands, Yannick and its friends were in Tuzla, in Bosnia, where the region experienced the breakup of the former Yugoslavia and a war that transformed the post-World War II Europe and marked what is known as one of the massive failures of the United Nations, incapable of stopping the Srebrenica massacre when 8,000 Bosnian Muslims were killed by the army of the Serbian Republic of Bosnia under the eyes of the UN Profor, the United Nations Peacekeeping and Protection Operation, notably composed of Dutch Casque Bleu. It was 1994, and I was in the first year of my studies, and then I went to Bosnia-Herzegovina, to Tuzla. So you saw the war, then I came back a year later, in 95. It was in Tuzla when Srebrenica fell, the enclave. And so floods of refugees, young people my age, were coming into Tuzla. I was living between them for a good month of time. And then when I got home, <laughs> I really couldn't make sense anymore of why I'm doing sociology, theoretical sociology. So I want to understand how can it be possible that these kind of conflicts are still raging in Europe after Second World War and why we're not preventing this. It was very idealistic at the time, thinking that if you can study international relations, you would join that body of young professionals who are going to prevent further wars. <laughs> I think I honestly believed it at the time. I never thought that this would be a career. So I, mm -hmm. I didn't see it as such. So when we started student initiative in 94, it was supposed to be a couple of months, one year, a campaign to stop the war. We did some protests, we sent some aid to students in Tuzla, went there, built up some projects on demand. And then I thought, okay, I'll finish my studies and then I'll get a, quote, real job, unquote. <laughs> and I did actually. I left Spark at some time to work one year, but then I think it kept pulling me back in. There is so much that you can accomplish in fragile states that has meaning for young people. Mm. There are so much brilliant young people in these countries who are not just victims because a lot of people look at the news and they think this pe these people are all poor and they're all victims. Yes, they are. I mean, they're victims of the situation, but they all have agency, they all have dreams, they all have capabilities. And, and so to be able to help them to um, develop those capabilities and focus on their 
positive energy and, and try to see how you can help them to build their own future. I think has been so rewarding that, that mm. it just made sense to keep doing it. And I think from one thing came the next and then growth occurred and more programs came. And before you know it, yeah, you're actually also just very engaged in trying to, you know, always, of course, there's always more need than you can answer. So you get into this cycle of, okay, let's build a, a larger program. Let's make it a more efficient program. And here we are indeed, uh, decades <laughs> later. From the student initiative described by Yannick to the actual spark we know today, the road has been one of learning. To grow, Spark and actually Yannick had to convince, structure, fail and start again to finally arrive at the organization that exists today, working in some of the most unstable and conflict-ridden countries such as Libya, Yemen, Syria, Ukraine and South Sudan, just to name a few. Yeah, so I was 30 students at the beginning, and I think the first, uh, when it became, let's say, uh, a paid job, I think, <laughs> I still recall, I think it was 2000, 2001, and then there was like three minimum wage salaries or something, or two, two, and we shared it between three of us, so it was okay. like <laughs> two-thirds of a minimum wage each, and um, yeah, but that was like, uh, for us already, uh, we felt that like a huge... Um, uh, privilege, you know. Wow, we are even. It even pays our rent, you know, and 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 we're still allowed to do this. It's really rewarding. It's not only. I think that's also a misconception doing this type of a job. One is that you want to do good, but it's also really fun to do it. It's just a very nice job to have. It makes amazing sense for also your own personal interest of being able to develop yourself and doing something. Waking up in the morning, thinking, hey, you know. So I think it's. And this is why I like this line of work, that it's both, if you do it well, contributing to the lives, bettering lives of others. Mm -hmm. But it also, at the same time, really, um, yeah, enriches your own life. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think we all need to be also very aware that that is actually quite important because I also know that if you work in these type of countries and that it would not be the case, I think you would burn out <laughs> in yeah. months. It's very difficult, as you know, at Supernova to get your programs going in places like Yemen or Libya, or yeah. I, it's not easy, you know, and, and, and it's risky and there is challenges all the time. As you grow, of course, you need also to have quality control. You need to make sure that what you promise you actually deliver and then purely relying on short-term volunteerism, you know, was not good enough anymore um, because you cannot then no longer guarantee longer-term quality and continuity. Um, to the populations you serve. So then it slowly started building into one more professional organization. I think today it's 140 uh, employees. And I remember actually going directly to an event where our minister, Jan Pronk, was at the time our minister, a very inspiring minister. And so he had a speech somewhere and then afterwards I approached him, I gave him the letter and a private proposal. And, mm. um, and um, yeah, and then he believed that he should support this young activist group of students to try something. And, and, and then, then that from that one project came a follow-up, you have results, you show you, you don't lose the money, you do a proper report, or maybe the first time not so proper, but <laughs> proper enough. Yeah, and then, then starts that, line, that, uh, that learning cycle. But there wasn't a strategy at the time. What actually happened is that after, I think it was 19, yeah, it was 99, and then we had these three summer schools, and a lot of us were graduating, so people were getting the 
real jobs, right? <laughs> but then the Kosovo war happened. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, we get phone calls from our friends in Tuzla, um, and some of them were Albanian, um, who had friends who were Kosovo Albanian, who were on the run in Macedonia from the war. And then we get a phone call, another phone call. And then, so then basically what happened is that the community from Bosnia, who had family ties and professional relationships with the Kosovo Albanian community, actually recommended us to that community. And this is how we then started deploying into Kosovo. I must say that until today, this is actually a key element that we do get referred. And uh, this is very important because the, the number one defining thing about a conflict zone is it is one thing that's absolutely the lowest in the world amongst the population, and that's trust. So in conflict states, it's very difficult to build trust, to be trusted. And, and, and I mean, for, the, for an NGO like both of us, this is, for example, you can, you can measure this by the number of um, suspicious conversations you have with government officials who think that you're there to, to spy or to do it, right? And this is actually quite normal if you think about it, because these countries have been torn by conflict. The conflict is fueled by warlords that are actually playing off populations that are burning the trust constantly. Mm. So people don't even trust their own community members anymore, let alone foreigners. Yannick spoke of the misconception that people have of the human development and humanitarian aid professions, and in particular, of their totally unselfish aspects at the individual level. But to be fair, some would argue that this is also the case at organizational level. The human development and humanitarian sectors employ thousands of people worldwide and form a multi-billion dollar industry more than 200 billion in fact in 2022. Their players therefore have a critical influence including at the political level. Over the last 20 years local players have been constantly highlighting a previously hidden aspects. The self-justification and self-feeding of the sector's major organizations which rather than acting as transition and empowering players maintain needs and fail to integrate and strengthen local players. Let's face it, also for Spark, you know, for myself, like many of these projects we got because we were the only organization or one of a few who were silly enough to go into a war zone, sit there yeah. and run a business incubator. I mean, yeah. right? So because people with real jobs, <laughs> right, they, they wouldn't do that. So. So, but that is dangerous because then if you then think, wow, it's because I'm great, you know, you lose your sense of adaptation, you lose your sense of realizing that you must earn again that, 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 that trust in the community. And so then what I think was what made new programs successful, very good, strong local partners that understand the countries mm. and building up domestic capabilities in these countries um, with organizations from these communities, drawn from these communities that obviously have challenges in their own growth, their own professionalization, but trying to help them to basically help design programs, run programs, and in the process learn. Mm -hmm. And also enable them to go through the same, if you like, learning and growth as we've done. Um, With the only exception, difference, difference that they are actually from those countries, so they will remain, They, Mm -hmm. they they will be there for an extended period, whilst, of course, organizations like Spark should... I think in my view, really have to be very strict about 
see themselves as a transitional force. And I mean, in aid, that often goes completely off track, and then the own interest of organizations takes the first pole position in many cases. I've seen so much of that around mm-hmm. me. From the very beginning, it was actually, if you look back at the old policy documents from the 50s, 60s of last century, it's already talking about don't give people fish, but give them a rod to fish, right? Duh, it's all these this, this, this cliches, but they, they were already then there, and it just did not happen. Do you feel disillusioned? I would say that I'm not disillusioned, but more become a realist in that sense. Um, I think the trick is, but this is very personal, I've seen colleagues, you know, really leaving mm-hmm. and saying, I see so much that I do not like. Like, for example, I remember, just to give you a few examples, in Tuzla, massive abuse by UN soldiers of girls. And so, like, wait, these guys are coming here to protect the population, so why are they sexually abusing these girls? Um, or, you know, you had the Haiti scandal, of course, with Oxfam recently. You had So, I think at some point you start realizing that people are people and that actually, you know, the world is not just a happy place. So then I think the question is, okay, can you deal with that? There were moments, especially at the beginning when I was just out of university, I had a really tough time and I was actually considering at some point, you know, maybe this is not for me and I don't like it. But then I had some, let's say, real jobs again. And you, you see that also in the real jobs, things are not perfect, right? And then you realize, this is my own conclusion, basically, so far that... Nothing is perfect, so I think the trick is not that to expect the perfect, but I think the trick is to, within your own span of control, to do the best you can and try to convince that this is also about systems, it's not just about people. Mm-hmm. So I get a lot of my energy from people actually, so why I'm not at all disillusioned is I see amazing local initiatives, I see people turning their lives around because of setting up a small enterprise or finishing university where normally they would not have been able to, but they mm-hmm. got a scholarship. Or So you see that it really makes a difference. I think that is what gets me up at 6 a.m. in the morning still. I've had so many conversations with donors where I really sit down with people, especially after you know them for a couple of years, and say, look, it's really great that you do this tender again, and I'm quite sure I can win it, but if you would change it a bit, this and that, and if we would then get a local partner to be a co-applicant, I mean, would you allow this? Yes, of course. And so I think for all of us, I think it's not just to do our projects well, but I think it's an extra obligation that we do have to channel our insights by running our NGOs and and, and working with local communities and bringing that knowledge to the intention of donors. And then what makes groups like Supernova, Spark, and others working in these countries credible is that we are credible voices because we have that experience. We can recommend it not based on slogans, but based on actual observation. Um, give one, uh, one anecdote that Spark in Holland are doing economic development. And I really had questions from some more established organizations in public, in fora, saying, are you a company or are you an NGO? What? And I did first didn't get it, but it was like, even emotionally, you know, like, you're helping business, this is bad. Until the moment the Dutch government started to relabel a lot of the aid and private sector development became trending. And then suddenly all these actors that have been attacking us, poof, they had like private sector development uh, departments and platforms, UN organizations, the same things. Suddenly it started to become a thing. <laughs> but it, but again, you can be skeptical about that. and. Yeah, a little bit but 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 you can also see an opportunity because if this is the way it works that does mean that you need to make sure that that you know that the government's putting the money forward to UN to us basically don't only say please have your bookkeeping in order 
Yes, of course it should be. But also tell them, okay, but we expect on localization that you achieve certain targets. That, that if you start a program of three years, after three years, the local partner should be able to be a co-applicant. And after six years, two grants, they should be a lead. Make it explicit. And then if you make it fundable, if you make it a priority by the funders, I'm quite sure the whole sector will follow because yeah, it's an industry. So any industry will listen to the client. The client is a donor. So yeah. that they, there you go. You know, in this world, every it seems every other year we have a massive new war. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't think that this was the last one that we're now seeing Hamas-Israel. Uh, there will be probably next year another one, I'm afraid, um, or two, and then another, and another. And so if that's the case, you must also build organizations that are able to build that network locally, support yeah. it, but then also still have mind space and have capability to react to the next crisis. And you don't know where it will be. You can actually predict it. There's pretty good conflict indicators in research, so you can actually predict it pretty well, unfortunately. Um, but then you must be also very agile to react immediately when it occurs. Um, yeah. I think one thing that's super important, and that comes from the top, is to avoid what they call toxic positivity. Everything is amazing, everything is great, we are great. And before you know it, you become what I would call an incredible, a non-credible uh, actor in this field. Mm. It's also actually quite positive to be critical and say things don't work because it's very positive actually to realize this is the case because it means you can learn. If everything is great, then what's there to be learned? Nothing. So I think you need to reevaluate the concept of challenges or failures and see them as a positive thing that will make you better. I see organizations that are structured almost like what they call product companies, you know, so they have a product we do okay business incubators so let's roll out business incubators we have a model it's in a box these are the product specifications and we just scale it and scale it and scale it mm. it's a way but i think it is yeah it will not achieve localization also because the business model will speak often against it because you get empire building you get mm. okay our own turnover is more important than look um and so that but that's a way to scale and then the other way of scaling, but that's more difficult, is to identify the good actors in these countries that can deliver that product. And yes, give them the specs, give them the training, give them the expertise, but let them, in a way, develop their own solutions, you know, tailor it, uh, adjust it. And so even by, if you go and you say, we are listening to what's locally needed, you have to really listen. You shouldn't come with a pre conceptualized ideas you should really try to start conversations very open and and, and I see a lot of fake localization now where people say like yeah we really had uh, we tested the concept with local stakeholders and then it's fake localization because you know you open the box you take out a few people from the community you let them say that they love it and then you close the box again and you sell it oh yeah here it was tested no this is easy this is lazy and we learned that on the beginning because we had a summer school. They wanted the summer school. They wanted to get professors from Europe to come to Bosnia after the Dayton Peace Agreement. So we organized the summer school. But we were all social scientists. So we were asking university, would you like to have a course on inter-ethnic relations between communities and how you mediate conflict? 
And of course we got like, oh yeah, yeah, of course we got. So we organized the summer school and I remember the first year we had, I don't know, maybe 15 classes in social science topics and five in heart science and medicine. University of Tuzla is a technical medical university. It doesn't have really social science, but we were social scientists from Amsterdam. And they were saying, yes, yes, we want it. So what happened is that all the foreign students, with five of them in the classroom, were listening to the foreign professors to the sociology course. And then the medical courses, engineering courses, they were packed. And I remember then discussing that later with the vice rector of the university who was in charge of the program and asking, but, but, but Andrew, why? But why didn't you guys tell me? And they told, well, yeah, because you guys were so nice and, and we were not sure it was going to happen anyway. And yeah, and we didn't think, you know, it would be polite to tell you in a very Dutch direct way. On October 3rd, 2023, Spark announced that Yannick will step down as CEO on January 1st, 2024, after having contributed to economic development across dozens of fragile and conflict-affected countries. Peter de Ruiter will take his place during a transition period after a couple of years in the organization. January, so first of January, yeah. I'm, uh, and that's actually already 29, soon 30 years after Spark started as a student group. Uh, I yeah. left five times during that time, but yeah, it's been a long time, and uh, yeah, so uh, that's that's uh, that's what's going to happen. And um, what can we what can we wish you in the future? Well, I think you know systemic change. Yeah. <laughs> so I think looking more at what the learnings have been and trying to accelerate development um, with yeah with with. Uh, With highly impactful ethical initiatives that 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 that, that deserve to grow and mm -hmm. that can actually make a difference in the world. Um, that's what what I still hope to be and will be doing uh, for sure. Wow! Uh, we wish you obviously all the best and thank you very much for for sharing all of this, Thank you. Thanks. Good luck with uh, all the great work. Scale. <laughs>